This episode discusses adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual abuse of a child, and is intended for adult consumption only. Listener discretion is advised. If you have been affected by sexual violence, free, confidential support is available 24-7 through Reigns National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online.rain.org. It's 8.30 p.m., November 15th, 1999, in the suburban city of Terrebonne, Quebec. Julie Suprenon, a bright and popular 16-year-old, is leaving the Terrebonne Youth Center with one of her friends. The two girls walk briskly through the lamplit streets to catch their bus. They chat about music, their boyfriends, the usual stuff. When they board the bus, there are around a dozen passengers already on it. Smiling warmly at the driver, with whom they're both familiar, they sit up front and continue to chat. Traveling southwards through the town, the bus soon reaches the Terrebonne shopping center. This is where her friend alights while Julie remains on board. She and the bus driver talk pleasantly as the bus crosses the bridge towards Ile Saint-Jean, a small diamond-shaped island situated on the Milil River that runs through this part of Canada. At 8.56 p.m., the bus arrives at Julie's stop on Rue de la Castille. From here, it's only 50 meters to the apartment where she lives with her dad. It's an easy walking distance. You'd even be able to see her home from here if it wasn't so dark. After saying goodnight, the driver watches Julie step into the lamplight beneath the stop. She walks away, her black backpack bouncing up and down, the sparkling hand-drawn peace symbol catching the light. Once Julie has vanished into the darkness, the driver checks to see if any new passengers are waiting to board his bus. That's when he notices a lone figure lurking in the shadows close by. He's a white man in dark baggy clothes and is wearing what appears to be a New York Yankees cap underneath a hood. The lower half of his face is concealed by a black bandana, but due to the cold weather, the driver doesn't think much of this. What is strange, however, is the man's behavior. He's hesitant, as if unsure about what he wants to do. The driver calls out to ask him if he's getting on. Not speaking, the man in the cab simply motions the bus away. With that, the driver continues on his route unaware that that would be the last confirmed sighting of Julie Suprenon. Despite living such a short distance from the bus stop, Julie doesn't make it home to her father that night. Her sudden disappearance will result in a frantic search of the small island, and the whole city of Turban will be shaken to its very core. While the police launch a thorough search, her terrified father will also embark on his own private investigation into who might have possibly abducted her. However, in time, the truth about what happened that night will be revealed through one of the most controversial deathbed confessions in the history of Quebec crime. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, 
and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Julie Supuenon, a teenage girl who vanished one cold winter's night. It's about the national attention of her case, the strenuous police investigation that followed, and a heartbreaking search led by her distraught father, who refused to give up hope. It's about a strange, mysterious man who lived directly above the Supranons, the dark secrets of his shady past, and two reports of a deathbed confession that might finally reveal the truth behind what really happened that cold November evening in 1999. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Tuesday, November 16th, at number 463, Rue de la Castille, Terbonne. In their lower floor apartment home, Julie's father Michel wakes early and gets ready for work. Padding down the corridor in his dressing gown, he knocks on Julie's bedroom door as he passes, telling her that it's time to get up. Michel went to bed last night before hearing Julie return, but that's not unusual for those Monday evenings she spends at the youth center. Though it is odd for her to still be asleep, she's usually up earlier than him and already using the bathroom ahead of school. As the kettle comes to a boil, Michel calls out her name again, but then... Glancing toward their front door, he notices something strange. Neither Julie's dark brown leather coat, nor the green wool jacket she often wears under it, are hanging from the coat pegs. Returning to her bedroom, he calls out her name even louder, bangs on the door, and after receiving no answer, opens it. She's not there. Michel doesn't panic just yet. He assumes that Julie must have spent the night at a friend's house, or perhaps with her boyfriend. 
It's even possible that she woke up early and left for school before the usual time. If so, she'll have definitely left him a message on their answering machine. But when he plays back the missed calls and messages, there's nothing from his daughter. No excuse or explanation for her absence. There must be a simple answer to this, Michelle thinks. But even as he tries to reassure himself, he knows that such thoughtless behavior is uncharacteristic of his daughter. Julie is a conscientious, responsible 16-year-old. She's well-behaved at school, has a vibrant social life, and is involved in various local activities and clubs. Michelle thinks of her as dependable and mature, someone who would never return home late or leave early without telling him first. His mind racing with worry, Michelle walks towards the window. The supplenants live in a lower floor apartment, so his view stretches all the way along the Rue de la Castille. He can clearly see the bus stop that his daughter waits at every day, the same one she would have gotten off at last night. Michel bought Julie an annual bus pass for that route due to its close proximity to their apartment. He hadn't wanted her to ever walk the long way home over highway overpasses and busy streets. After all, who knows what sort of people she might run into along those dark pathways. As the minutes stretch into hours and there's still no phone call to explain Julie's absence, Michel becomes increasingly anxious. He decides to check in with anyone who might have seen his daughter. He calls Julie's boyfriend, her high school, her mother Francine, from whom he recently separated, and the Turban Youth Center, where Julie spent Monday evening. No one has seen her. According to the friend she left the youth center with, Julie got onto the bus just after 8.30 p.m. and seemed to have every intention of heading straight home. So... Where is she? Panic now flooding inside of him, Michel stares out of the window again towards the bus stop, just 50 meters from his apartment. Did something on this short stretch of road stop Julie from reaching her front door? Or rather, someone? At 5.45 that same day, Julie's disappearance is officially reported to the Quebec police force. Michel describes his daughter as being five foot two with brown eyes and brown curly hair. She has a beauty mark in the center of her forehead. He then gives a detailed description of how she was dressed, including her dark leather coat, a fish pattern scarf, and the hand-drawn peace symbol on her black canvas backpack. After speaking with Michel, the police consider two possibilities for her disappearance. The first is that she's run away from home, but according to Michel, Julie was a happy girl. He can see no reason for her to have left voluntarily and quickly discards this option. This leaves them with the second possibility, one that's far more sinister. Julie may have encountered somebody dangerous on her short walk from the bus stop and could have been abducted. But even though it's a possibility, police admit that it's unlikely. You see, crimes like this just don't happen in this part of the country. Ile Saint-Jean is a small, friendly island with less than half a mile circumference. It's surrounded by the beautiful winding Riviere de Milil 
and it's typically regarded as a safe, almost idyllic place to live. The idea that Julie would be abducted here of all places makes no sense whatsoever. But then again, police can't deny the fact that 16-year-old Julie is missing. So they open an investigation into her disappearance and begin questioning witnesses. Maybe someone in town will have the answers they need. The first person police speak to is the bus driver from last night's route. It seems that he was the last person to see Julie. The driver confirms what Michel already suspects, that Julie left the bus at her correct stop, practically right outside of her home on the Rue de la Castille. But then he reveals a worrying piece of information. The driver explains that he saw a strange man wearing a cap and a bandana, lurking in the shadows next to the bus stop. The man didn't get on when the driver asked and instead slunk away in the very same direction Julie was headed. The bus driver describes the stranger as being short, around five foot seven with dark eyes and dressed in baggy clothes. Unfortunately, he can't offer much more than these basic details. However, as it turns out, the bus driver isn't the only person to have seen this strange man. Over the next few days, as the investigation grows and police put out a public appeal for information, several witnesses come forward with similar stories. Most of the passengers from Julie's bus tell police that they also saw the shady-looking man loitering by her stop. They support the driver's vague description of him being around five foot seven, with dark eyes and oversized clothes. The need to identify this lone figure quickly becomes a matter of vital importance for the police. It seems that at the very least, he might have been the last person to see her. And at worst, he might be responsible for her disappearance. In a desperate attempt to locate the unknown stranger, police decide to investigate every man living within the small radius of Ile Saint-Jean. No one is safe from suspicion. Alongside interviewing witnesses and possible suspects, Quebec police launch a full-scale ground search of the Ile Saint-Jean. Over the following days, they comb the small island for any sign of the missing girl. It's a massive search effort. Detectives knock on the doors of every home and business on the island, carrying out over 3,000 interviews and investigating 100 phoned-in tips. The news of her disappearance quickly spread through the town of Turban and, eager to help, over 200 volunteers assist the search. An anonymous donor even pledges a $5,000 reward for any information leading to her whereabouts. Frustratingly, though, the days pass and there's still no sign of Julie. Hope is dashed with each dead-end lead, and people start to wonder if she'll ever come back home. It's with great sadness and a growing sense of mourning that on Sunday, November 21st, six days after she disappeared, Julie's friends hold a candlelit vigil for her at the youth center. But there's one man who refuses to give up hope. At the center of the search 
is Julie's anguished father, Michel Supoinon. So far, he's tried everything he can think of to find his daughter. Appearing on national television to ask for more information from the public, contacting the Quebec police in regards to their investigation, and following any lead that might take him to Julie. But months pass. The days become colder, Christmas comes and goes, and still, there's no sign of her. Michel is becoming increasingly frustrated by the police investigation. He even begins to suspect they're deliberately keeping information from him. For one thing, Michel knows that police have been investigating a local man. But although he frequently asks, they refuse to confirm anything, nor will they divulge any information about who that man might be or why they think he's linked to Julie's disappearance. Despite this lack of cooperation, or rather because of it, Michel has begun to develop his own dark theories. Considering how his daughter vanished just meters from their home, he's become convinced that one of his neighbors must have played a part in her disappearance. It's a horrific thought, but one he can't dismiss. As the days go by and he crosses paths with them on the street or in the shops, he dismisses their sympathetic looks. Soon, just one question stalks his mind. Who is responsible? Listeners, in honor of May being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, ParCast is presenting a new collection of captivating stories you do not want to miss. On Disappearances, Sarah Turney examines the disturbing crimes linked to the Highway of Tears and the Bethesda Home for Girls. Plus, she welcomes the founders of the Black and Missing Foundation for a special discussion. Catch these episodes starting May 4th. Then, on Unsolved Murders, discover three no-body homicide cases rife with cons, conspiracies, and conflicting statements. The Unsolved Murders special, The Missing Dead, starts May 16th. Follow Disappearances and Unsolved Murders to hear all of these episodes all month long. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Michel recalls that when he and Julie first moved into Rue de la Castille the previous year, he made a deliberate point of asking the landlord if it was a safe area to raise a teenage girl. The landlord assured him that it was. He then introduced him to some neighbors, including a 45-year-old man who lived in an almost identical apartment directly above them. A car salesman named Richard Bouillon, a man who now has become a chief suspect in Michel's own mind. Bouillon has never really interacted with the Supoinance that much. He and Michel were on nodding terms, but 
As far as Michel was concerned, Bouillon and his daughter had never even spoken. Now, though, Michel is convinced the car salesman neighbor might have something to hide. For one, he's watched the police visit Bouillon's apartment a number of times. Of course, detectives are interviewing lots of people, but still, they certainly seem interested in Bouillon. What's more, Michel notes that there's a chilling resemblance between Bouillon and the cap-wearing man described by witnesses. Bouillon himself is a stocky man of around five foot seven and often wears large, baggy clothes. And of course, his apartment window provides him with a clear view of the path between the bus stop and their own building. He'd have been able to see Julie walk directly from the bus to her home. Fed up with sitting at home and waiting for answers, Michel decides to take matters into his own hands. He launches his own investigation into the man who lives upstairs. To start his investigation, Michel does some digging into Bouillon's background. Perhaps the car salesman has a pre-existing criminal record or some sort of shady past, something that would explain the police's ongoing interest in him. To this end, Michel heads down to the local courthouse. However, for reasons which aren't known, nobody there will tell him anything about Bouillon's past. He's not even able to run a simple background check on the man. It's not clear if authorities know something and choose to hide it, or if Bouillon's record really is squeaky clean. The more Michel probes, the more he feels the truth about his neighbor is being kept from him. As winter melts into spring, the one thing that keeps Michel going is the glimmer of hope that a break in the case might arrive soon. But as each day passes, his hopes of finding her alive fade a little more. By the summer of 2000, the grim reality is beginning to set in for Michel and the rest of Julie's family it is looking less and less likely that she'll be returned to them safe and well. Despite this, though, Michelle is still determined to uncover the truth of what happened to her at the very least. What Michelle doesn't yet know is that a breakthrough is just around the corner, and when it comes, it will be from the most unexpected of sources. It's a dark, wintry evening in November 2000. Almost one year has passed since Julie Souponon went missing. Tonight, though, unlike the clear, dry evening a year ago, rain splashes against Michel's windows and wind howls through the small neighborhood. Michel sits alone in the home he once shared with his beloved daughter. Everywhere he looks, he sees painful reminders of her. Hanging from the hat stand is a purple bowler hat that Julie loved to wear in the summer, a wilted flower still attached. He's been keeping it there in the hope that she might one day return and still want to wear it. Lost in thought about his missing daughter, Michel is startled when his doorbell rings. He's not expecting anyone. As always, whenever the door goes, he can't help 
but hope that it's the police coming over to give him news about Julie. Has there been a breakthrough in the case? Maybe she's finally been found. But when he looks through the peephole of his front door, Michel is astonished. Standing on the porch is 47-year-old Richard Bouillon. Releasing the small chain from the door, Michel cautiously opens it and stares at the man in front of him, swaying slightly in the rain. Bouillon is a heavy man around Michel's own height. Dressed in a baggy sweater, he has a double chin, dark bags under his eyes, and his hair looks as though he's just rolled out of bed without washing. Coldly, Michel asks the visitor what he wants. Bouillon replies that he'd like to talk with him. Michel is taken aback. Despite living in the same building, Bouillon hasn't once been down to talk about anything. He hasn't even offered his condolences about Julie's disappearance. What on earth can he want to speak about now? Curiosity getting the better of him, Michel invites Bouillon inside and offers him a seat. But just as he was unprepared for this visit, he's in no way prepared for what Bouillon is about to say. Visibly sweating as he speaks, Bouillon explains that, throughout his life, he's been guilty of many things. Things for which he now feels terrible. Michel can't quite believe what's happening. Sitting in shocked silence, he just continues to listen, bracing himself for impact. Bouillon doesn't expand on what these horrors may be, but instead looks Michel in the eye and after just a moment's hesitation, makes a declaration. Unprompted, he suddenly announces, I didn't kill your daughter. Michel is stunned. He doesn't know how to respond. What has provoked Bouillon to come down here and proclaim his innocence? Has he somehow heard that Michel has been poking around in his past, trying in vain to learn if he has a criminal record? And just what are these things in his life that he apparently feels so guilty about? With these thoughts racing through his mind and unsure how to react, Michel simply acknowledges his neighbor's strange declaration for now and walks him to the door. Alone again, and with time to think, Michel becomes more convinced of Bouillon's guilt than ever. But as his previous attempts proved, he's powerless to do anything with these suspicions. He just has to wait and trust that the Quebec police will find evidence one way or another. He won't have to wait long. The authorities are about to make a significant breakthrough of their own. It's December 5th, 2000, less than one month after Richard Bouillon's surprise visit to the Suprenant home. For reasons which aren't yet clear, Quebec police have long suspected Bouillon of being involved with Julie's disappearance but they've so far been unable to find any hard evidence. However, they hope that today, that will change. A team of forensic officers appear on the doorstep of Bouillon's upstairs apartment. When he answers, they flash him some paperwork, a warrant to enter and search his home. 
Puyon's apartment is a mess. The surfaces are cluttered and dirty, but the officers are committed to searching every last inch of it. They photograph anything they see, rifle through his wardrobe looking for clothing that might have belonged to Julie, and apply a chemical known as luminol to the floors and walls. Luminol is a substance which glows when mixed with hemoglobin, a key protein found in blood. Almost instantly, they're met with a horrifying sight. In Bouillon's bathroom, the luminol is glowing with a bright blue light. There are significant traces of blood. Whose blood it is, is yet to be determined. But police believe it's enough to warrant his arrest, and they take him into custody and question him about the suspicious findings. Bouillon explains that the blood must belong to a former roommate who'd accidentally cut himself, but the Quebec police don't buy it. They compare the blood sample to DNA obtained from both of Julie's parents, anticipating that very soon, they'll have hard evidence linking Bouillon to her disappearance and perhaps tragically, to her murder. However, when the results return from the lab just days later, they prove inconclusive. There is still insufficient evidence to warrant charges against Bouillon. But although there is little connecting him to the case of Julie Souprenant, there is about to be a stunning revelation that will thrust Richard Bouillon into the limelight. In an unexpected turn, Bouillon's name is brought to the attention of a local television reporter. On air, she reveals that he's under investigation in connection with Julie Souprenant's disappearance. This media coverage provokes an extraordinary response. Several women suddenly come forward and share their own harrowing stories about Richard Bouillon. Between them, these women paint a picture of Bouillon as a highly dangerous and prolific sexual abuser. One of his accusers is his former stepdaughter, now an adult. By March 2001, four months after Bouillon's home was searched for blood traces, he's arrested on 16 separate charges, including six counts of sexual abuse and gross indecency against girls between the ages of six to 17 years old. This news is crushing for the residents of Turban. Michel and Julie Soupanon had been under the impression that their little home of Ile Saint-Jean was a safe community and that the man who lived above them was just an ordinary car salesman. This could not have been further from the truth. All along, they were in fact living downstairs from a prolific sexual offender. As the town waits for Bouillon to face a criminal trial, everyone wonders the same thing. Will Bouillon finally be exposed as having abducted Julie Souplenon in 1999? Once again, though, Michel Souplenon has to wait years for answers. Bouillon's trial doesn't begin until 2003, where he faces numerous charges of sexual assault. Bouillon is convicted on all counts but surprisingly is sentenced to just six years and five months in prison at Drummondville Penitentiary in Quebec. 
news of his alarmingly short sentence disgusts many throughout Canada who feel he should have been given life. And, due to the suspicions he already holds against Bouillon, nobody feels this injustice as deeply as Michel. Despite the passing years, the tragic mystery of Julie Souprenant's disappearance remains prominent. Every year on November 15th, the date she went missing, the facts of her case are repeated in the media and requests are issued for people to come forward with any more information. But still, no new leads are presented. Then in 2006, seven years after she vanished, it's reported in the media that Richard Bouillon, who has remained the prime suspect, has been diagnosed with terminal cancer and is living in a care facility. For those who believe he was involved in Julie's disappearance, such as Michel Souprenant, this news is bittersweet. On the one hand, it means that the convicted sexual offender won't be able to hurt anyone ever again. But on the other hand, if he dies, then he'll take any secrets about Julie with him to the grave. With this thought, Michel makes a request to the authorities to let him speak to Bouillon before he dies. Michel wants him to confess to the crime and tell him where his daughter's remains might be found. Then, he can finally give her a proper burial and gain the closure he so desperately wants and deserves. But, to his bitter disappointment, the request is denied by the police. On June 22, 2006, Richard Bouillon dies of cancer in the Cité de la Santé Hospital in Laval. To everyone in Turbonne, it seems like his death has marked the end of Julie's case. With the prime suspect dead, they may never know what happened to the missing teenager. However, it's not the last they've heard of Richard Bouillon. It'll take another five long years, but a message from beyond the grave will eventually emerge. A dark admission confessed in secret will one day be revealed reigniting interest in Julie's case and promising to finally solve the case once and for all. Add a berry blast off for your day with the new berry pebbles. A berry twist on a classic breakfast. Perfect for giving those growing minds a blast of creativity. <laughs> with the new berry way to pebbles. Yabba dabba do you with Berry Pebbles. Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. Yabba dabba do and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements. Copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. It's January 18th, 2011. Five years since the death of Richard Bouillon. And 12 years since Julie Souprenant disappeared. Settling down in her home after a hard day's work is Annick Proudhon, an auxiliary nurse at Laval's Cité de la Santé Hospital, the hospital where Richard Bouillon spent his last months. Annick is watching a live news program on a French-language channel about the now historic unsolved case of Julie Souprenant. The presenter is Claude Poirier, one of Quebec's most famous and respected crime reporters, whose career dates back to the early 60s. 
Tonight, he's been reminding his audience of the details surrounding that mysterious night 12 years earlier when the teenage girl vanished into thin air. But it's when Poirier begins talking about Richard Bouillon's possible involvement that Anique sits up straight on her sofa. She listens intently as Poirier mentions that, despite being the prime suspect, Bouillon died without ever confessing to killing Julie. This sentence rings through her ears. Without hesitating, the nurse reaches for her cell phone and dials the number now scrolling across the TV screen. She calls the show's tip line. Anique leaves a message claiming that she was one of the nurses who cared for Bouillon in his dying days. Clearing her throat, her voice shaking with emotion, she goes on. She claims that she knows something that she now realizes nobody else does. The fact that Bouillon did confess to the 1999 murder of Julie Souprenant. After leaving her message, Annick places down her phone and returns her eyes to the television. Within minutes, the show's producers return her call. Once they've established that she's a credible witness and not some hoax caller, they ask if she'll go on air now to tell her story to Claude Poirier live. But Anique feels anxious. Won't people be angry with her for not reporting her story sooner? The producers promise that she can remain anonymous if she wishes. And so, with some reluctance on her part, the call is patched through to live television. Once on air, the anonymous nurse nervously explains to Poirier and his viewers that when Bouillon had been on the verge of death, he'd asked several people if it would be possible to speak to Poirier himself in person. It seems he had wanted to confess his sins to the famous crime reporter. Poirier expresses utter astonishment at this. He says that he tried to get an interview with Bouillon many times in the weeks leading up to his death, but the authorities never allowed it. He asks Anique why Bouillon's own request to speak to him was never granted. Anique replies that, until tonight's program, she'd always assumed it had been. She stresses that other hospital staff members were also under that impression. But having now learned the truth, she feels it's her duty as a citizen to come forward with her own story. Anique explains that on no less than three separate occasions, Bouillon summoned her to his bedside, wishing to make a deathbed confession. Each time, he clearly admitted to having sexually assaulted and murdered Julie Souprenant. It's a horrific claim to make at any time, let alone on live television. An uncomfortable silence follows. Then, somewhat nervously, Poirier asks if Bouillon told her what he did with her body. He did, Anique replies. Bouillon told her that after killing Julie, he placed her body in a large sports bag, loaded it with bricks, and then dumped it into the Milil River, close to a church. Before the interview ends, Poirier asks his anonymous caller if she will now report her story to the police, adding that this is what she should have done at the time. 
Anique promises to do so at the earliest opportunity. Anique's declaration on live television stuns everyone watching the show. On the following day, the story is widely reported throughout Quebec. When he hears the news, Julie's father is overwhelmed with strong, conflicting emotions. On one hand, Michel finds the unnamed caller's claim to be horribly credible, chiming as it does with every long-held suspicion he's been harboring about Richard Bouillon. On the other hand, he's terrified that her claim will turn out to be true. Because that will mean that all hope is now lost and he'll never see his daughter alive again. The day after Anique Proutom's call, the police interview her about her claim. And in July of 2011, the coroner's office orders that an inquest be carried out into the matter. However, it's decided that divers won't be sent into the river until fall that year, when the tide will be lower. Once again, all anyone can do is wait. It's September 29th, 2011. On this freezing fall day, the banks of the Milin River are teeming with journalists, photographers, and reporters. Everyone is watching the team of police divers as they plunge down into the cold water to examine the banks of the riverbed. But so far, they've found no trace of the sports bag supposedly containing Julie's remains. Michel Suprenant stands alongside the many journalists not far from where he once lived with his daughter. However, he carries little hope in his heart that these divers will find her now. He suspects that, if it's true that Bouillon really did throw the loaded bag into the river, then 12 years of freezing winters and strong currents will have either buried it deep below or carried it miles away. Despite this pessimism, he's determined to be here in the event that the truth finally surfaces. Hours pass and still the divers find nothing Darkness settles over the riverbank, and gradually, the crowd begins to disperse. With a sinking feeling in his heart, Michel knows that the search for his daughter will once again be abandoned. It's yet another disappointment in this now 12-year-old case. Of course, there are some who now speculate as to whether Anique Proutom's information was correct or whether the alleged deathbed confession ever really happened. Soon, though, these doubts will be put to bed. You see, it turns out that Richard Bouillon didn't just make one confession. He made two. It's March 13th, 2012. Today, the official coroner's inquest into Julie Suprenant's disappearance is underway. Giving testimony is Joanne Dubois, another nurse who also cared for Richard Bouillon in his final days. Joanne has been asked by the coroner if what Annie Crudholm said is true. Did she also hear a deathbed confession from the patient during that time? Joanne confirms it is true, testifying that, he looked me straight in the eye and said, I was the one who killed her. She adds that she believed Bouillon's words. Did you think about going to the police back then? The coroner asks. Joanne replies that she did not. Bouillon allegedly told both nurses that he wanted to confess to Claude Poirier specifically. They both assumed that Poirier had been contacted independently 
so the responsibility as far as they were concerned was not theirs. What's more, Joanne insists that she and Anique were not the only ones in Bouillon's room when he confessed. According to her, a correctional officer was present and a prison guard was stationed outside, watching the events unfold on a small television screen. She claims that both these men must have overheard Bouillon confess to the crimes as well. However, a lawyer for the correctional services in Canada later tells the inquiry that the guards never reported any such confession. Of course, this failure from both the nurses and the guards to come forward leads to feelings of frustration. If the confession had been reported five years ago, divers would have been able to search the river earlier and may have found something. But it's too late now. Michel Suprenon and the rest of Julie's family must wait for the results of the inquiry and pray that it will provide some sort of closure. On October 15th, 2012, the inquest into Julie's disappearance reaches its conclusion. As coroner Catherine Rudel-Tessier prepares to address the court, the watching world holds its breath in anticipation of what she might say. Tessier declares it's likely that on the cold evening of November 15, 1999, Richard Bouillon did abduct, sexually assault, and murder Julie Suprenon. After 13 long years, the tragic case can now be closed. Reading the full report later that day, Michel Suprenon has to accept the awful conclusion that has so long been denied to him. Although this monstrous fate is what he has long suspected, the pain of seeing his daughter pronounced dead in an official document must be excruciating. While Michel believes that the two nurses were telling the truth and that Bouillon really did confess on his deathbed, these facts are of little comfort. They don't bring back his daughter, nor do they alter the fact that her killer evaded justice. To this day, no trace of Julie Suprenon has ever been found. It's widely believed throughout Quebec that Richard Bouillon was her killer, despite his deathbed confession only having been belatedly reported so many years after the crime. But the mystery of what exactly happened to Julie still haunts the people of Terbonne. On November 15th, 2014, exactly 15 years since she went missing, a monument was erected in her honor. It's close to the spot where she was last seen stepping off a bus. The monument is permanently lit by a lamppost and it depicts the bowler hat that Julie would sometimes wear. The inscription underneath refers to her as Petite Fleur, Little Flower. At the unveiling, her father Michel said that he wants the monument to stand as a reminder to parents to keep their children safe. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Dr. Thomas Cream. London in the late 19th century is still recovering from a savage series of murders. The culprit, named by the press as Jack the Ripper, has never been caught. So, when four years on from the Ripper's crimes, a fresh spate of murders occurs, 
Scotland Yard fears the worst. Could Jack be back and killing again? A deathbed confession made in Newgate Prison claims that's exactly what's happened. But is there any truth behind it? Or is it just another red herring in one of the most infamous cases London has ever seen? Find out next week on Deathbed Confessions. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by James Benmore. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.